Welcome to the Billionaire Slap Fight episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of a packed week in business and finance. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hi. Hello. Uh, oh my God. How much do we have to talk about today? We so have much. So much. We have Elon Musk. We have Rivian. We have IPOs. We have capital gains taxes. We have inflation. We have people quitting their jobs. We have Johnson & Johnson. We have General Electric. We have the end of the conglomerate. We have so much that we had to take the whole bit about people going off the record and put it into Slate Plus. It is a jam-packed show. Um, we are going to somehow manage to squeeze Imogen Heap into there. Everything is in here. NFTs, you name it, crypto. Stay tuned because this is the nuplus ultra of Slate Monies. It's all coming up after this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm going to start with deconglomeratization, Emily. All right. Very cool, because very sexy. It's a it's a cool and sexy word, but there are two of the biggest and most storied companies in America. If you grew up in, you know, when I grew up in financial journalism in like the the 90s and 2000s and you had the Dow 30 and it was all about these big blue chip stocks that there is nothing more blue chip than General Electric and Johnson and Johnson. These these are the the bluest of the blue chips, and they both do a huge number of different things. And both of them this week have announced that they are splitting up and becoming multiple different companies. So Johnson Johnson is splitting into two. It's got the healthcare business, and it's going to also split into its consumer business. General Electric is splitting into three. It, too, has a healthcare business. It's also going to create a power business, which is basically lots of turbines. And then it's also going to do its jet engine business. This is the end of GE, basically. GE is just basically not going to really exist um, in any kind of recognizable form after this. And honestly, I kind of think it's the end of Johnson & Johnson as well. Um, you know, this idea that you can bring together companies in so many disparate industries and do a whole bunch of M&A and create this sort of world-spanning giant um, seems to be on the outs. It's almost impossible to think of basically any company in America that does that anymore, with the possible exception of Berkshire Hathaway, which is kind of its own sort of unique What about 3M? 
Yeah, I feel like, yeah, maybe 3M. I mean, I feel, but again, like, I it feel like it's only a matter of time until 3M just kind of gets bought up by some massive private equity fund and spun out into a hundred different businesses. You know, like, the... Um, the driving idea behind GE was always that there wasn't really any synergy between these businesses, but that what GE had was incredible management chops, right? And it had these amazing managers who would go to management school in, in like upstate New York. And once you were trained as a GE manager, you could manage anything. And then suddenly you got parachuted into some business and like, because you were a GE manager, it would make lots of money. And um, and two things happened. Like one of those things was that the it turned out that the GE managers weren't very good after all, and they would do dumb things like buy Alstom, which was this French power company that was worth like a negative amount of money and spend like twenty billion dollars on it. Um, but the other thing that happened was that the sort of central core of GE, the sort of coordinating function in upstate New York, that didn't really create anything and had no revenues but was was you know the place where managers learned how to manage and that kind of thing just became bigger and bigger and bigger over time to the point at which it just became this massive like cost center and now they've realized like there's no point in having that and we're just going to lose it it was unmanageable as it were Wow. Sorry. Big companies are often <laughs> unmanageable, right? So like so like Facebook is unmanageable, but like the reason why Facebook is valuable has nothing to do with the quality of its managers. Whereas like the the reason why GE was like so profitable for a long time according to GE was the quality of its managers. In fact, it was all financial engineering which came unstuck during the financial crisis, but that's a different story. I'm, I I was wanting to ask you too. I mean, what is the reason, is there a reason more broadly that these kinds of organizations, conglomerates have fallen out of favor? Is there like a trend here, something to watch? I know that in these times, in 2021, managers have actually fallen out of favor. Like companies want to be lean and they want to be flat. Shots fired. I mean, it's true, right? I mean, it's not what it used to be to be manager. There's fewer managers now than there used to be, I believe. Um, if you read, like Harvard like, Business Review. Right, Stacey, think of a company which is famous for having really good management. Well, as you say, that was the claim to fame of GE. It's I can't think of a single tech company when, in which anybody would be like, and you know what? The reason to work there <laughs> is you will be managed like you've never been managed before. Right, like Steve Barmer was famously, you know, was a terrible manager. Like Bill Gates was a terrible manager. Mark Zuckerberg is a terrible manager. Steve Jobs was a terrible manager. I think Tim Cook gets, you know, credit for being a decent manager. But like in general... He's an incredible operator. That's right. that's for sure. And it's, it's weird because I was having a... I was having breakfast with a source this morning and they're trying to hire up. And one of the things that they were saying is they treat hiring like execution, that one of the most important things that they assess whether somebody can execute is how well they hire and how well they can manage. And I just feel like it's such a refreshing slash old school perspective on on so many of what we're dealing with these days. It's, it seems really like something that's fallen out of favor, partly because most people aren't good at it. Right. And even the people who are good at it aren't sort of going out and trying to boast about how good they are at it. Right, exactly. It's not like invest in us because we're amazing. 
well, it's, it's invest in us because we're amazing, not invest in us because our managers get shining reviews from their direct reports. Right, that they're investing in us because we've done the Peter Thiel thing of creating a monopoly and uh, rather than investing in us because we are just really good at making widgets. And is there something else going on where conglomerates used to make sense and now they don't make sense? It, in, in other words, it used to make sense for one company to do a bajillion different things and now it doesn't. And And is there a reason for that? Or is this just one of those things that... Yeah, I have a theory about this. And, and my theory is that this is kind of related to the move away from dividends and towards stock buybacks, which is the big blue chip companies like J&J or GE always used to, and still do really to this day, take great pride in maintaining their dividend. And they would pay like a reasonably hefty dividend every quarter. And the stock traded on some level, on a multiple of dividends, right? Like you had you had a dividend yield. I can't remember the last time I heard anyone talk like seriously about a dividend yield. But like this was the case definitely in the 70s in the sort of heyday of the conglomerate. The individuals would go out and they would buy their $1,000 of GE stock or whatever, and then they would get dividend checks every quarter and they would live on those dividend checks. That was that checks. That was the income they were getting from their stocks that you know there were income stocks and in a world where maintaining a dividend is incredibly important having a diversified group of businesses is incredibly valuable because if one business does badly in a quarter then that's fine another business can do well and pick up the slack and so you get like natural diversification within the business nowadays Everyone gets their bit diversification by buying an S&P 500 index fund. And companies have basically stopped paying dividends, or if they do pay dividends, it's like special dividends. And the, the, the fetishization of like, we will pay this great dividend every quarter, while it still exists, is much less of a big deal than it ever used to be. And the main way that companies return money to shareholders is not by dividends anymore, but rather by stock buybacks, which happen in a very lumpy way and everyone expects them to be lumpy. So you don't need that diversification and evenness anymore. It like feels to me very related to that era of management, which is what a wild economy to live in, in which you're like, I hold GE, therefore I'm good <laughs> because I'm going to live off dividend income. It's just, it, it's such a novel, this is like me, elder millennial, can't wrap my brain about this previous way in which people survived problem. But yeah. Truly, truly a comment on the financialization, the internetization, and just the like the dramatic shifts in in income distribution and wealth and how people get and don't get it that we that we continue to see. Yeah. And GE also just it, it's at home right now we're watching 30 Rock. And I don't know if you guys remember 30 oh, Rock, wow. but the Alec Baldwin character is meant to be this GE executive and he's hilarious and worships Jack Welch. And it's a total send-up of that culture. And I feel like his name is Jack. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's Jack Donaghy. I actually Jack Jack Donaghy is the vice president of East Coast Television and Microwave Oven Programming. Yep. Which, <laughs> which is a total GE joke because GE made microwave ovens and television. Like he, like you know it owned Thirty Rock, right? It owned yeah, NBC. owned NBC. Yes, exactly. Which now seems yeah. kind of absurd, I guess. But at the time, <laughs> kind of made sense. People, that's. That's just what, That's you, what do. you do. You buy you buy NBC. You're the phone company. You buy HuffPost. 
<laughs> Matt Levine also pointed out that um, investment bankers really did quite well thanks to GE's need to make deals buying like, and selling because yes. yeah GE has been selling for a while buying buying all like yeah 7 billion dollars or something is the total amount of money that GE has paid in fees over the past 20 years just buying and selling companies you know like 7 billion dollars like even by GE standards is quite a lot, it's of, a lot money. of money yeah i mean yeah. what management yeah. prowess to give a bunch of money to a bunch of bankers i don't i don't know i think the emperor had no clothes there i mean if if you were the person buying infinity expensive watches on the other end of this, I feel like you your clothes are probably pretty good. <laughs> so. The emperor has a lot of clothes and a big, big has closet. a lot of clothes <laughs> in a summer house. <laughs> Meanwhile, the J&J announcement is interesting. They claim this has nothing to do with their Texas two-step bankruptcy. And, um, and I am not sure I believe them. Um, I don't believe them at all. So... Um, what they have said is they're basically willing to take all of the assets or up to all of the assets of the consumer business and use those assets to settle the claims of people who claim that they got cancer from using J&J baby powder. And spinning off the consumer arm into an entirely separate company makes it that much more difficult for the rest of J&J, like the really valuable bit of J&J, the pharmaceutical bit of J&J, to, um, to be held liable for any of that. Well, I mean, they specifically said they're insisting that these things are unrelated. And I'm sure that there is a way they're going to convince various investors and themselves that this is true. But the, the timing is really interesting because, you know, I think to the point that Emily was making zero and then two <laughs> in 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 a matter of a week like what is what are the underlying things that are really driving this oh yeah we don't want to be big conglomerates anymore so yeah this is my my big question is is given this long-running trend which has been going on for decades there aren't that many conglomerates anymore is there any way that Berkshire Hathaway stays together after Warren Buffett dies it will clearly stay together until he dies he's not going to be the one to break it apart I mean, I don't, I don't think it stays together. And what we've seen, and correct me if I don't have these numbers right, but <laughs> I don't have a number here. And what we've seen is when companies, conglomerates break up, their pieces are more valuable. They become more valuable companies separate than together. Is that not true? Um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes not. It's like, it's, in general, the conventional wisdom is that mergers destroy value and demergers create value. Um, but that's not always true. All I can think of is eBay, PayPal, which I'm sure is not the best example of. of but that of a, is a good example because PayPal is much more valuable without eBay. Yeah, way more valuable down. than mm -hmm. than eBay ever was. Yeah. So by that logic, why wouldn't why would Berkshire Hathaway stay together? Um, Warren Buffett obviously provides value like inherently to that company. Like there's probably some kind of premium there because he's he's basically like a. I don't know. People worship that guy, right? So, well, no, he gets he gets deal flow, right? So, like you know, in the financial crisis, when someone needs emergency money, um, they really want that emergency money from Warren Buffett because it's like Warren's vote of confidence. But once Warren's not there, then that extra value you get from having Warren's vote of confidence evaporates. There you go. He's the brand holding the whole thing together, and without him, it's gotta. I, I would bet that it breaks up. Perhaps he's also a good manager. Who knows? <laughs>
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Emily, tell me about worker revenge. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Felix and Stacy, I wrote about this for Fortune in my newsletter there this week. Um, Her excellent newsletter. Love that. Um, yeah, retail and fast food workers, low-wage workers are essentially, they actually have some leverage right now because they companies cannot hire and find enough of them. And I've been noticing these stories cropping up and like, you just truly love to see it. So there's a great story in the Washington Post of these workers at a McDonald's in Bradford, Pennsylvania, where they're making like $9.25 an hour. And, you know, they just want to make a little bit more money. Their managers won't won't give them raises. So they all walked out together um, and they put up a sign. They, they closed the store down, walked out, put up a sign that's like, due to lack of pay, we all quit. And then they went and found new jobs. And this is like happening across the country. There are like literal signs popping up in places saying like, you know, we, we all, we all quit. We're not getting paid enough. Um, and at the same time, we're reading stories about um, retailers really scrambling to hire, offering huge bonuses, hiring bonuses at Amazon, at Macy's, as we're, especially as we're heading into the holiday season. It just seems like the- Or even changing requirements, right? Saying, actually, we're not going to ask for a completely useless degree mm-hmm. or we're not going to do drug tests or we're not going to require a driver's license. Like the, all of, you know, various of the things that have been like accoutrement of hiring in the US are just falling by the wayside as people are like, what if we just had people working instead of jumping through arbitrary hoops? So to, you know, bring it around to the other big news of the week, what's happening is these People are going off to find higher paying jobs. The employers are paying them more money. And they've realized that prices aren't as sticky as they used to be. And so if you're paying your labor force more money, you can actually do that and maintain your margins by the simple expedient of just raising your prices. (laughs) And so this is how you get to 6.2% inflation. And that's the big news of the week that I suppose we should should get into. Inflation Inflation is big. It is real. It is 6.2%. We can argue is it about transitory? How, whether or not it is transitory or even what transitory means. I think most people have given up on even trying to unpack the meaning of that word. But it is definitely become a major political football at this point. And it is something that people really hate. And one of the things that fascinates me is that even if you have way more money than the increase in prices. So, you know, if the amount of money you have to spend every week goes up by like $75 because, you know, 
the grocery bill goes up and the gas bill goes up and the restaurant check goes up and everything else. And meanwhile, you have like $300 extra in child support and a bunch of extra money in wages because you got a raise because you quit and got a better paying job, you know, and you can more than cover the rise in prices. You still feel really bad about inflation. You still think inflation is a bad thing. And that dynamic where, especially among like the bottom two quintiles of the income distribution, where we've seen very, very large increases in both wages and wealth, they are still deeply unhappy about inflation. And so like, this is a real problem politically. Um, But yeah, it's no one is coming out and saying, or very few people are coming out and saying, this kind of inflation is great, because it's just what happens when people pay me more. First, I, I wanted to say that I feel like for months, people have been talking about inflation. Republicans especially have been saying it's it's here and it's really terrible and blah, blah, blah. And there's been so much pushback from economists and like econ Twitter being like, no, no, nothing to worry about, just transitory. And I feel like when this number came out this week, that officially ended that kind of, no, no, don't worry about it kind of rhetoric. Like no one is saying that anymore. That's over. I I think what you're seeing now is a little bit of consensus that, okay, inflation is happening and it's happening a lot more than we thought. And we actually don't really understand what it's like to live with inflation because it the last time it happened hasn't like, <laughs> been true for such a long time. Yeah. Like the last time it was the seventies. I read a, something today or yesterday that was like, don't compare this inflation to the seventies, compare it to post-World War II. And I was like, oh my God, we're really like swimming in uncharted waters right now. I, I feel like anyone who tells you they know exactly what's going on with inflation and with the economy is, they don't, I don't think. I think this is something yeah. new. But the 70s are really important because, um, and it's not just because this is a country run by septuagenarians, you know, who who do who do remember the 70s. But it's also because the 70s were the point, were the one point at which Inflation was a genuinely damaging economic force. Inflation in general is not hugely damaging, right? Like, it, there aren't that many people who just have massive savings accounts or checking accounts or cash under their mattress or whatever, which just gets like eroded away in, in value. But in the 70s, what you got was this self-fulfilling inflation, right? You had this, what's known as an inflationary spiral, where workers demanded wages not so much to make up for the degree to which prices had gone up, but to make up for the degree to which prices were inevitably going to go up in the future. And that people started right raising their prices because they knew that, you know, consumer prices would get raised because the manufacturers knew that producer prices, the amount that they needed to pay to their suppliers, were going to go up in the future. The people looked out a year and a head saw like the inevitability of inflation and raised prices today as a result of future inflation. And that inflationary spiral where like it becomes very self-fulfilling was a real problem in the 1970s and 100% does not exist right now. And it really didn't ever exist before the 1970s either. It was this very peculiar... Um, thing that started with like the oil shock and and but one of the problems is that whenever inflation looks like it's 
spiking, and especially right now, the fears of inflation feel much more real because of the risk that that inflationary spiral might emerge. And I have to say that for the time being, at least I'm pretty sanguine about this. I don't think that inflationary spiral is going to emerge, but it does explain why people get so scared about it. Okay. And I think that fear, one of the consequences is probably going to be the Biden administration's Build Back Better bill, which is the one point nine seven trillion dollar bill that has a lot of policies in it to combat climate change free universal pre-k all this stuff i think there's a fear now that if they spend if that bill gets passed and they spend that money it's going to be too stimulative and it's going to make inflation worse which probably isn't true but the fear of that happening is spread out over many years 10 years yeah so it's not like they're just dumping 1.7 trillion dollars into the economy tomorrow which really would (laughs) exacerbate inflation Mm -hmm. um the biden administration keeps on um wheeling out this talking point that a bunch of nobel prize winning economists have said that the build back better bill would be disinflationary which i'm not convinced about that either but yeah, definitely there's this, you know, there's this feeling that inflation has been caused by fiscal policy being too loose. There's another feeling that it's been caused by monetary policy being too loose. You know, ultimately the proximate cause we can all agree was, you know, the pandemic, which caused both the fiscal and the monetary policy and also all of the supply chain disruptions the supply which shocks. have yeah. which have which have, you know, which are still reverberating and will do for a while. Which is maybe why the post-World War analogy is so interesting right? right because that was also another massively disruptive event societally economically infrastructurally and did come with a bunch of necessary infrastructure upgrades and in to some extent you know more power back into the labor force than before much more power for the, for the labor force much more inflation and good inflation right good inflation that was accompanied by healthy economic growth and like that was like pre-70s inflation where people weren't actually worried about it that much. The trick with inflation is not to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sure. The column I read, it was Paul Krugman who was talking about post-World War II inflation. And, and one thing he pointed out was there was probably like bad monetary policy reaction to the inflation. But one thing that the federal government still managed to do was build infrastructure, including the, the federal highways. Like no one back then was like, if we build the highways, it'll be too stimulative. No, they built the highways and it helped like, un, you know, it helped unlock some like supply chain economic issues more broadly that kind of helped calm things down, actually. So I don't know, maybe that goes towards the Nobel prize-winning economists arguing that it would be disinflationary to do more stuff. The the one thing which is very (laughs) new about 2020s inflation, which definitely didn't exist in the 50s or even in the 70s, is that in the 50s and the 70s, you did not have crypto bros. (laughs) You did have gold bugs, though. And the crypto bros are... They cannot stop talking about inflation. Like Jack Dorsey is out there on Twitter, like going hyperinflation. Look, it's here, inflation, and and suddenly they've all rediscovered Satoshi Nakamoto one point zero. You know, Satoshi Nakamoto one point zero, where where he's like, fiat currency is bad because it gets inflated away, and we need to replace it with something digitally perfect. And I I kind of briefly thought that we've sort of moved on from that and now now everyone's like into smart contracts and you know defi and all of this kind of stuff but no apparently there's still this 
this very like strong Bitcoin maximalist strain of, um, you know, anti-fiat, we need a whole new currency thing, which will not go away. And is I think, Stacey, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but like, is having an effect on the discourse more broadly? It's certainly having an effect on the discourse. And I want to, um, I was just looking up to make sure I got this correctly. So John Authors, who's my, a colleague here at Bloomberg and is not a crypto bro in the slightest, did a very interesting chart. You know, we love a good chart showing that I'll read it out loud. Over the last 10 years, the headline CPI has risen 28%, which to the point is like a very low number over the course of 10 years. But if you had denominated that index in Bitcoin, you would have had deflation of 99.996%. And deflation is terrible. The the one thing we can all agree (laughs) on is the deflation is much, much, much worse than inflation. I don't think I understand that stat. Well, essentially what they're saying is, the other sentence is, if it, what cost you one Bitcoin at current prices 10 years ago would now cost 0.0004 Satoshi. Uh, right? like you, now I understand. You, you, would be in, <laughs> you would not be worrying about how am I going to pay for milk <laughs> um, if, if, you, if all of your holdings were in Bitcoin. And this is, this is very much to, I can't believe I'm going to say the sentence, to the, to the Bitcoin maximalist credit is very much one of the biggest underlying premises of Bitcoin that if you are worried about inflation, this is an asset that you should hold. But but no but yet yeah, but no I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> but no can I just say Felix but refuses. no a lot of times because uh, I need to stop being angry and st- start trying to speak in full sentences. All right, assets that are inflation hedges are all well and good, and we can all talk about like. Is gold an inflation hedge? Are equities an inflation hedge? Is Bitcoin an inflation hedge? Like, if you're worried about inflation, I mean, you know, can I just go out and buy tips? Inflation index, treasury bonds. There are various different ways you can hedge against inflation. And if, you know, the Bitcoin people reckon that they found some clever asset class that hedges against inflation, like all power to them, they can go out and buy that asset class and it goes up when there isn't inflation and it goes up when there is inflation and it goes down in both situations as well. And it's just like very volatile. As a currency, however, the last thing you want as a currency is anything disinflationary. If you have deflation in a currency, that is terrible. If the price of everything is going down, if especially if it's going down fast, but even if it's going down slowly, that is terrible because it is this constant significant incentive to not buy anything because it is going to be cheaper tomorrow. And so no one buys anything. It's incredibly bad for growth. You need a little bit of inflation in order to keep growth going. If you have deflation, then the economy just kind of grind slowly to a halt because no one wants to buy anything ever because it's just they'd be better off just waiting for it to get cheaper is that really how people think like why do people buy stuff before christmas then you know it's going to be cheaper after like people still buy stuff to give christmas presents yeah and you need to buy milk (laughs) i mean i I don't, I'm sure you're right, Felix, whatever. But like people buy stuff for all kinds of wild reasons and they're not always going to do the logical thing. Like I'm just logically going to sit and not buy a, something. No, no, no okay. But is like, going down. let me give you a real example, which is used cars, right? Everyone knows that we have like a very artificial situation right now going on in the used car market. The used cars are crazy high. They're certainly going to come down in price in the future. And if you ask anyone who knows anything about cars, 
should I buy a car right now? They are all going to give you the same answer, which is no, you should not buy a car right now. You should wait for prices to come down. If you know that prices are going to go down in the future, and if you have the ability to wait, then you wait. And that's what everyone in the car market is doing. But that's broadly what everyone in the economy does in a deflationary environment. Okay. But just to ask you one more thing. So if there's inflation going on um, and I need to do something with my savings, so they're not just, it's not just losing value. Does it not make sense to just buy some Bitcoin or whatever? Because we know that's going to, the price of that is going to go up lots and lots more than my savings account. There you go. If you know that the price of Bitcoin <laughs> is going to go up lots and lots, then buy Bitcoin. Like, you know, that's the, but, that's but you the theory, do that right? Regardless, but you do that regardless of inflation, right? The price of Bitcoin has gone up lots and lots over a decade in which there was no inflation. And it may or may not go up lots and lots in a decade when there is high inflation, or there may not be high inflation. But like, there is no correlation between Bitcoin and inflation. Right. Okay. Yeah. There are there are definitely spikes. I mean, the the, the one of the teams of Bloomberg Economics, I think they were they were saying something like fifty percent of Bloomberg's recent of uh, of Bitcoin's recent appreciation has to do with the in, the in, the inflation hedge dynamic. Um, and then, of course, there are other analysts who are like, no. <laughs> so that's, that's what's fun about markets. You can find any explanation for anything that you're looking for at any time. I mean, it would make sense that people are trying to put their money places where they can still make a nice, make good interest rates and stuff, right? I had a, I had a poll. I did a little poll on Twitter. Um, I'm going to ask you two what you think the answer is. And I'm going to say what like the Twitter hive mind said. I said, inflation, is it good for stocks or bad for stocks? Markets don't care. That's my, that's my response. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, Stacey says, like, basically neither. Um, Emily? Well, I, I would want to agree with Stacey, but for the sake of contrarianism, thank you, I'll say it's good. <laughs> it's good for stocks because you put, you'll put your money there. You are, you are in the majority. We had two-thirds saying it was bullish to only one-third saying it was bearish. I think... I'm I'm with you. I'm in the majority. If inflation is, you know, allowing you to raise prices and keep margins high, um, and like you're just selling goods for whatever they cost in real terms, which is what companies do. If those real terms are going up in nominal terms, then you have that lovely little sort of tailwind in terms of increasing your profits and cash flows and everything and i think it's good for companies the argument that it's bad for companies is you know it basically relies on the central bank reaction function it's like well the fed is going to have to raise interest rates and if interest rates go up then discount rates go up and if discount rates go up then the net present value of future cash flows goes down and so that yeah blah, blah, blah. like there is an argument that inflation is bad for stocks but i think probably the the wise mind here as ever is is stacy's new really doesn't make any difference. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. 
Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but... I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. What was the big Twitter poll of last weekend? I mean, basically, Elon Musk asked the internet if he should sell a bunch of his Tesla shares. 10% of his Tesla shares. Indeed. And he's like, and I will abide by the results of this Twitter poll, then Twitter was like, bring it on. And they were like, yes, Elon Musk, you should sell (laughs) 10% of your shares. And lo and behold, Elon Musk has sold a bunch of shares. Should I read it aloud? Yes, please read it aloud. Okay, much is made lately of unrealized gains being a means of tax avoidance. So I propose selling 10% of my Tesla stock. Do you support this? So he makes it into this thing about um, billionaire taxes. And and then, yes, 50, 58% of his followers do support him selling his stock. 58% of people who voted in the poll, because you don't have to Right, I'm sorry, you're right. Yes, 58% of people bored enough to vote in his poll. Whereas the, the overwhelming majority of the replies to the poll came from like Elon Musk, Tesla stock holding fanboys who were like, no, don't do it. It's going to make my stock go down. <laughs> and it did. <laughs> and it, well, I mean, like the stock is still worth like, you know, a thousand well dollars, pretty much. I, think, I, I feel like they're all probably fine. Um, there is a conspiracy theory, which I suppose we ought to entertain. Elon Musk knew that he had to sell a bunch of stock anyway for various tax reasons associated It's not a conspiracy with... theory. That's just that's just like a fact. <laughs> but but no, the conspiracy theory comes in where, where, where like he kind of knew that he was, he knew what the result of the poll was going to be and he did the poll to like cover up the fact that he would have to sell the stock because otherwise it would be a bad look to sell stock but now it looks like a good look because he's doing what twitter says and like it just seems way too convoluted and like i don't think he knew what the result was going to be and i think that was just him having like a brainwave on a weekend and he's probably like smoking weed or something yeah elon musk just being elon musk and just having fun and tweeting and even though the tweeting you may have led the stock to drop a little bit and caused Elon Musk to lose like 80 million dollars or something. Um it doesn't it doesn't really matter like that's just the price Elon Musk is paying to have fun on Twitter. I mean, we're all paying a price too. And when you're when you're the world's richest person, what's 80 million dollars among billionaires? You know, <laughs> it's just like <laughs> like eh, lols. <laughs> It's like an expensive dinner. He had to sell the stock, right? Because, or he had stock options that were expiring that he had gotten like 10 years ago. And he had to. Right. He had it's, to. It's not clear whether that was the stock that he was talking about selling, right? The new stock that he acquires by exercising his options, that's actually income. That's not, you know, unrealized capital gains. And he needs to pay income tax. And the only way you can ever pay the income tax on that, well, I mean, most people sell a bunch of the stock they get when they exercise options in order to pay the income tax. Elon could probably borrow that much money if he needed to because he's Elon. But, you know, I think people really did get caught up in 
unhelpful knots like talking about that whole aspect of things um but yeah he's gonna he's sold like five billion dollars of shares um he's gonna sell even more because five billion dollars of shares is not even 10 percent of his holdings because he's that rich he's gonna pay 23 percent capital gains tax on those sales and that's going to be a bunch of billions of dollars going to the federal government to spend on infrastructure. Yeah. And California too. I think um, I saw some estimates. California's getting a large chunk <clears throat> of Elon Musk's taxes on this as well. You got it. I mean, 2022 is going to be Texas. Yeah, right? exactly. He's left California. He's moved to Texas. If he does no the, income tax. if he does the options exercising in Texas rather than California and he's living in Texas, you know, I am not a tax lawyer. I don't know. But like a lot of the talk about his effective tax rate being 50% um, or 54% and stuff like that is ba- is predicated on him being a California resident, which he is certainly not anymore. And what is all this? What's my what's the takeaway here for the billionaire tax discourse? What What am I learning? What did I learn from this? I don't know. I, I, I feel like <laughs> if you want to learn about taxes wealth distribution, capital gains, unrealized, you know, wealth and all the rest of it. Looking at a meme lord a meme lord edge case is just gonna never shed light in any helpful way on anything. Like Elon is Elon. He's gonna Elon and the rest of the discourse can like move on. But like but yeah, I think there was talk, you know, when there was that like one day long proposal to tax unrealized capital gains that this would affect like 700 people. I think we can talk sensibly about proposals that would affect 700 people. Um, but Elon is a very unique one of those 700. And I don't think he necessarily is a great way to sort of shed light on how the other 700 would best be taxed. We should also mention, though, the largest ipo of the decade i mean this is it's amazing how much news there is this week because we had a 14 billion dollar ipo this company rivian no company has raised this much money on the stock market since alibaba went public in 2014 no american company has made raised this much money on the stock market since facebook went public in 2012 14 billion is an insane amount of money to raise in an ipo and what makes it completely insane is that it has zero revenues. You're talking about this is Rivian. A, this is a yeah, this is a pre-revenue company which raised 14 billion dollars. It's worth now it's listed on the market. It's worth about 100 billion on the market. Make sense of this. This is like the platonic ideal of venture capital. <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> it, it is. It's VC gone public markets at a scale that no one could ever dream of it's absolutely bazonkers and the only reason i think i'm i feel comfortable saying that the only reason that rivian is worth 100 billion is like a relative value trade with with tesla right it's like if tesla's worth a trillion then rivian's probably worth you know 0.1 teslas so we should say that rivian is i think it's a 12 year old uh, EV electric vehicle company that I think specializes in electric trucks. It has backers like it has Amazon backing it, and I think the idea ultimately is to build some kind of like and electric and Ford. That Ford has a big shareholding to build some kind of like electric delivery vans, which does have some potential. Um, but the the difference 
and Dan Premack had a good piece this morning, the difference between Rivian and Tesla and why that comparison may not be correct is because when Tesla IPO'd, it was it was less far less mature than Rivian is right now. So it had more like runway to to get big. It didn't have as much VC backing. Like Rivian already had a billion dollar plus valuation. Um and, and, you know, it was just has more money. It has less to room to grow now because it's so valuable. It, it's it's a different situation than Tesla. And it seems kind of doomed to me, actually. Like you might have made money this week on the IPO, but like going forward, I don't know. Where are you going to go I, from here? The, the, well, I mean, I feel like, again, we are living in this bizarre world where we're conflating the company and the stock, right? The Rivian has a truck that people are very excited about. They have an SUV that they haven't even started making yet, but that people are very excited about. They have a van that Amazon has already committed to buy 100000 of and will almost certainly buy more than that. They have good design. It's, it's real, like, ground-up EV stuff. And as a business, I think there is a strong reason to believe that Rivian will have a good business, it will be profitable, it will make money, and and there is a relatively bright future for Rivian, and people are, you're going to see a lot of Rivians on the streets, and that's going to be uh, a successful business. A now, thing, yeah. Now, like, you know, that is an entirely separate question from, like, will the stock go up or down? And the stock can go down by 90%, and it's still a $10 billion company, which is, like, out there making trucks that people like to drive. And so I'd be interested to see if Rivian becomes a really successful company and sells a lot of trucks and the stock comes down to planet Earth, like, would that be considered a success or a, or a failure? Like, are people really these days just judging companies on their share price rather than what they do and how much money they make? Well, we just said that nobody cares about management, Felix. So <laughs> I was wondering when Felix was saying that, I was like, that's an oxymoron. You can't be a successful company if your stock price is going down. Like that's not the story anyone's going to tell about you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good your product is, how many deals you have with Amazon, blah blah blah. If the stock's going down, the story about your company is you're a loser. You're you're not doing well. Like I, I just don't see that happening. Unless it has, I, I can't think of an example. All right, folks. This is this is where you write in slate money at slate.com and tell us. Give us some examples of successful companies that have done very well as their share price was declining. I'm sure there are examples. I just, I'm a bit like you. It's like, it's not easy to think of that, but I'm sure it's happened. I feel like if Anna was here, she'd be like, um, you have to have growth. If you don't have growth in the stock price, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> so, because we started this by talking about Twitter, um, Elon Musk and Michael Burry of the big short fame have been in a sort of a, a billionaire slap fight for a little while. And this one is about Rivian. And so Musk was saying in response to somebody else, I hope they're able to achieve high production and break even cash flow. You know, and then he's like, Tesla's the only American car maker to reach high volume production and positive cash flow in the past 100 years. And then Burry is like, mm, the true test is achieving that without massive government and electricity subsidies on the backs of taxpayers who don't own your cars. And you're just like, ooh, snap, fair points were made. Um, but to the point that Emily was making earlier about infrastructure, so much of this conversation about Tesla, about Rivian, and about the relative antipathy of this phase of the economy to like government subsidy is bizarre to me because 
government subsidy and infrastructure are things that these companies are not just relying on, but like massively benefiting from to to get to the scale and the interest and the enthusiasm that they have. Like it wouldn't make sense to bet on electric vehicles if you didn't think that the Biden administration and future ones had some kind of plan to continue subsidizing these sorts of transactions. Um, but anyway, that is that is my I don't understand how billionaires think digression of the day the auto industry wouldn't even exist if like to go back further like we didn't build the highways (laughs) yeah here we are we three having a numbers round (laughs) we're not gonna Um, split up this conglomerate folks no we're we're sticking we're sticking together people at least for the time being my number this week is 3.4 percent which is the new quits rate a new all-time high in the quits rate did i steal Uh, your number god damn it final find another (laughs) one carry on (laughs) basically 3.4 percent of the entire american workforce sorry that's not true three percent of the entire american workforce and 3.4 percent of privately employed americans quit their jobs in one month go workers go the month (laughs) of um that, I think that was October, was that September? I can't remember. It's September, right? But yeah, that's an absolutely insane, like if you multiply that by 12, you basically get getting on for 40% of the entire workforce just quitting their jobs any given year. So the quits rate is gazonkers. It's 4.4 it really million Americans. The, right? Mm-hmm. 4.4 million. And it's up and down the food chain of workers, right? Because it's like those McDonald's workers I was telling you guys about walking out, putting up their signs. But the Bloomberg had a piece about <laughs> finance workers quitting their jobs and getting like eight figure eight salaries. Figure. Eight figures. I was like, what? Um, at, for in their new jobs. And, and, and it's, but it's all the same kind of thing. It's people that are like, there's more opportunities there. I don't have to put up with this crap anymore. And the the Bloomberg story, it was the bankers that, you know, didn't get any sleep over the past year. And then, you know, the, the McDonald's workers are like, haven't had a raise in forever and ever and everyone's mean to them. So like, of course they're going to quit. Like for so long, workers in this country, up and down everywhere, have been treated mostly like crap. I think we can all agree. Um, so I just, I love to see it. Quit away, everyone. Keep going. Quit, quit away and go go work in crypto where the salary is enormous. <laughs> like the mayor of New York, get paid in crypto. Emily, what's your what's your number? I'm gonna give um, I guess this stay, give Stacy a little bit more time to I find found another back. one. You Thanks. found another one. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll go. Okay, so my number is two dollars and ninety nine cents. That is, I think, the monthly fee for Twitter Blue, which is Twitter's new subscription product that I'm weirdly excited about. I don't know what that says about me. Are you going to pay? I, I was trying I to don't. Think. I don't understand what you get for it. It's, okay, so it no ads. so weird to me. You get content without ads that you can read and you get some like, Wait, there are no ads game. in the stream? I thought there were ads in the stream still. Do they take out know. the ads? Uh, let's not talk about that. I don't know. Do you know? Stacy, I only know you get some content. It's the only, it's the only thing that would make me pay. No, is if I no longer have rando promoted tweets. But you, in my stream, I would pay two ninety nine a month. You also get, which I think I'm kind of excited about, an undo, an undo button. So like, you write your tweet, you hit tweet, <laughs> and you have thirty seconds in which you can click undo to take the tweet back. And I feel like I isn't that just the same as that? a delete button? No, delete. You always have. Everyone knows that you delete it, right? Because you click on the old. How link do they for the know? Tweet. 
Because you click on the link for the for the tweet, and it says this tweet is. So been what deleted. happens if you click on the link for one that was undone? It's gone, baby. It's gone. It's undone. <laughs> Time has been reversed, and I. I feel like I this is like not that. worth thirty six dollars a year. I think it is. I think also Kara Swisher pointed out like this is just their first try at subscription at a subscription product. Like Amazon Prime in the early days wasn't so great, but now Amazon Prime is like, why would you buy anything on Amazon if you're not a Prime member? I mean, that's just my opinion, but it's true. I think my, it's going to be the same favorite, kind of thing. My favorite tweeter is Stacy Marie Ishmael. Stacy, you have a <laughs> you have a little tip jar on your on your Twitter. Has anyone left you a, t- a tip yet? Yeah, well, so I was I was in the beta and I just I thought I switched that off. Literally never have I received it. <laughs> you know, I have some amount of followers and not a single person has ever been moved to be like, here's a dollar for your tweets. Oh, your tweets are like, so good, zero. Stacy. You've never given me a dollar, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) So it's okay. I, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate to have a full time job. I'm I'm like good, but you know, if I were sort of a creative professional who was like, great, I can, you know, I can try something with tip jars or I can try something with super follows, I would have a lot of questions about what my expected earnings would be on a monthly basis. Um, Well, no, you wouldn't really. You'd your expected earnings would be zero. You should quit. Indeed. The sustainability. Right. Indeed. And get an eight-figure job working on Wall Street. Exactly. Um, eight figures. Ha. Huh. Eight figures. Eight figures is a lot of figures. It's just a lot of figures. I mean, depends on inflation, yeah. right? <laughs> Woo! Well, I mean, if, 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 you make, if you make like $113,000.48, that's eight figures. <laughs> Felix. All right. So my number... <laughs> my number is four which is the number of virtual apes. Yes, yes, stay with me. Are they bathing? In, are they bored apes? Uh, three are bored, one's a mutant. Oh, okay. In a supergroup that's been put together by Universal Music Group, which reps, you know, T-Swift and Drake, among others, into an NFT band called Kingship. And what? I feel like there's 17 different concepts that I have to explain in that sentence right now. But is this is this the new... Like, I feel like there used to be... A gorillas. weird, slightly ironic, not really supergroup called Gorillas, where it was all animated by Jamie Great someone, music. and it had like Damon Albarn, mm-hmm. and it was like, and I, and it was the first like animated, legitimately good music group, and now we're gonna have NFTs who are correct making the music. But is Damon Al- is Damon Albarn inv- involved? Like, who's making? The- is it Taylor? Tell me, it's Taylor Swift. <laughs> Trust me, I would have led with if it were if it were Taylor Swift. <laughs> so, just so everybody knows, like these are four illustrations of apes. Um, you know, but mostly from a company called Board Ape Yacht Club, which has made tons of money convincing mostly very wealthy people that they should change their Twitter avatar to a simian of some kind. And, you know, one of the guys who owned a lot of these apes was like talent agencies have been reaching out to him and been like, yo, you seem like really hip to whatever this NFT thing is. We want to work with you. Are your your apes talented? Can we get some of your most talented (laughs) apes? Well, now I think it's going to be a fun challenge to see whether they can turn these apes into talented apes. Right. So, you know, 
I haven't yet seen the end. Of course, this is like going to be a big reveal who the musicians will be, who are going to be behind these apes, what the musical style will be. There's a lot of questions about the actual creative attached to this. Um, but this very much reminds me of, you know, a couple of years ago. Well, actually, they're, they're still out there. We had like virtual influencers, which were like AI and created virtual avatars on Instagram and people would like they would model clothes for real black real bands, um, real brands. So, you know, this is this to me is where the line between the crypto and what folks are calling the metaverse gets weird and blurry and profitable for some companies and highly confusing for most other people, which is here's a crypto concept. Here's a thing in which you can own the rights to a, like a piece of digital art. And then these very traditional major companies are coming in and saying, we want to do something interesting with that. We have no idea what the use case is, but it seems chill. I feel like just musically, it's going to be really interesting because, because like we are not in the age of Blur and Oasis anymore. Like there, there's no. something about the, the age of Blur and Oasis where that kind of music lent itself to animated simians in a way that I feel like these days where you have like K-pop and hip-hop, like doesn't. K-pop, hip-hop and T-Swift are the, the three genres of music. <laughs> I purely don't understand today. what a music NFT is. Isn't how I... It, 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 it's an a great NF question. And, and one what? of the interesting things about this... I mean, this is this is actually, and we are. This is the lightning numbers round is becoming very less light, lightning by the minute. But they, one of the fascinating things is that music has been very slow to get NFT'd. So I do think that if I had to guess, the person I would say like would somehow wind up getting involved in an NFT music project would be someone like Grimes or Imogen Heap. Because she's been ah, into Imogen Heap. Imogen Heap has been into NFTs yeah. for a long time, and I feel like she's going to try and get involved in this. Song. I hope she does because I love her. She's awesome. Bjork did in 2017 have an album that came with its own tokens. It was her Utopia album, and when you bought it, you got an audio coin. And what's happened to the value of the Bjork coins? The latest number that I can find on that was earlier this year is that they were trading at around four pence and they were worth around 15 pence at the time. <laughs> so they they went down from 15p to 4p? To 4p, I'm I'm, I'm long Bjork coins. I'm like, ne never mind Ethereum <laughs> and Bitcoin. I'm, I'm just going to like load up on Bjork coins because she was clearly, an, you know... She was always ahead of the game. She, she was the first mover and like eventually the first movers will get rewarded. So I think that's it for us this week, unless you're a Slate Plus listener, which you should be, because we will talk on the record about off the record. On background. On background. No comment. We're going to talk all about like how to understand news articles when PR people insist on being on background the whole time. That's coming up in Slate Plus. But otherwise, thanks for listening to this show on this very busy news week. We, we will be back on Monday with Ed Lee talking about episode five of Succession. <laughs> In a show that is produced by Shana Roth, who's amazing, who produced this too. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh my God.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.